Hey everybody, welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I've got a really big show this week. Uh, there's been a lot of a lot of news that I wanted to catch you up on, but we've got a couple interview shows right in a row, and uh, things have been piling up. So we've got a lot of news to talk about, and because if you're listening to this show when it drops, it'll be on New Year's Eve, and uh, we've got a New Year's Eve resolutions show for you today. And uh, I'm going to be encouraging you to do all those things you've been meaning to do and just never got around to doing. And I'm going to challenge you with some New Year's resolutions uh, to do some really just basic things that we really just all have to do. Uh, so we're going to be talking about those at the end of the show. Stay tuned for that. Also wanted to let you know that uh, a little teaser here for the 100th episode of the podcast. That's hard to believe it's been almost two years now, uh, but it has. We got the 100th episode coming up very soon. Should be at the end of January. And uh, I've got some really fun things planned for that episode, and you're going to want to listen to that one for sure, because I'm going to be giving away some stuff. We're going to have some contests uh, of some variety. I'm still working, I'm still working out the details, but uh, you're definitely going to want to listen to that and some other really great fun stuff. It's all coming in the 100th episode. Uh, so, you know, be a great time to tell some friends and family, hey, this is a really cool podcast, and uh, this episode is going to be one you're not going to want to miss. So stay tuned for that. So we're going to cover uh, quite a few little news stories today. We're going to talk about why you can't judge a website by its little green padlock anymore. Uh, we're going to talk about that super micro story that came up about a few months ago, the big story about the supposed Chinese you know, hardware hacks. I'm going to give you an update on that that's interesting. I'm going to tell you about some fitness apps that were recently caught stealing up to $120 from its users in a very tricky way. I'll... Uh, tell you about those. Um, we're also going to talk about some interesting statistics on phone scams and uh, why those people calling you are almost certainly not your grandkids. <laughs> More on that in a minute. Uh, we're going to talk about some a story about U.S. border agents that are failing to delete and even take basic care of data that they've taken from you at the border. Uh, that's not good. We're going to talk, of course, about the new law passed in Australia uh, that's really kind of scary in terms of uh, its implications on surveillance. And finally, we're going to talk about a New York Times story that really delves into just how much our smartphones are leaking location data. I mean, like a sieve and, and what you can do about that. And at the end of the show, I've got a special request for you, so I would appreciate hanging on for that as well. And hey, without further ado, let's get into the news. <laughs> First up, uh, caught an article from Krebs on security. Uh, I've mentioned it several times because it's a great cybersecurity blog. Brian Krebs does some really great investigative journalism around the area of cybersecurity and privacy. Um, and this article was, um, it, it's not news to me, but it's probably news to you. And I, uh, I thought it was really good to call this out and make, make the point. So uh, let me just read briefly a little bit from this article and then we'll talk about it. All right, in the article, Brian says, quote, Maybe you were once advised to look for the padlock as a means of telling legitimate e-commerce sites from phishing or malware traps. Unfortunately, this has never been more useless advice. New research indicates that half of all phishing scams are now hosted on websites whose internet address includes the padlock and begins with HTTPS. And of course, S is for secure. Recent data from anti-phishing company Fish Labs shows that 49% of all phishing sites in the third quarter of 2018 bore the padlock security icon next to the phishing site domain name as displayed in the browser address bar. That's up from 25% just one year ago and from 35% in the second quarter of 2018. 
This alarming shift is notable because of a majority of internet users have taken the age-old look-for-the-padlock advice to heart and still associate the lock icon with legitimate sites. A Fish Lab survey conducted last year found more than 80% of respondents believe the green lock indicated a website that was either legitimate and or safe. In reality, the HTTPS part of the address merely signifies the data has being transmitted back and forth between your browser and the site is encrypted and can't be read by third parties. The presence of the padlock does not mean the site is legitimate, nor is it any proof the site has been security hardened against intrusion from hackers. All right, so that was the quote from the article, and it's absolutely correct. Back in the day, when you saw that green lock icon, it did kind of sort of connotate a site that was safe and legitimate. Why? Because it used to cost a lot of money to get that padlock. And so, you know, the bad guys often, who you know, who bring these websites up and down all the time, um, wouldn't bother paying for the, to, to buy a certificate, which would allow for the encrypted communication. So just because it costs money tended to mean that the websites that had that, you know, tended to be more legitimate. It wasn't always true. Um, but you know, just because of the economics of it, that's kind of the way it worked. But all that means, all that padlock means is that your communications are encrypted, which means that the data that is traveling between your web browser and that website is encrypted so that nobody along the way can tell what you guys are talking about. Um, it doesn't mean that the person you're talking to is not a scammer. It's like having a private phone call with a scammer or a, a private conversation with a crook. Just because nobody can hear what you're saying doesn't mean that what that guy is trying to tell you is complete BS. So um, what changed, um, and this is actually a very good thing, is Google, uh, along with a consortium of other companies, put together this project called Let's Encrypt uh, in, an, in an effort to make much more of the web move to HTTPS or secure uh, communication, encrypted communication. They came up with this really nifty scheme for automatically generating certificates for the web, uh, which allowed for this encrypted communication, and they became completely free and very, very easy to get. So uh, on the upside, that means that many, many more websites now can support um, secure communications, even including mom and pop places that just didn't want to spend the money before now don't have to spend anything. But that also means that the bad guys can also get that service for free as well. So um, just take that to heart that when you go to a website, you're not you can't just look at the padlock. Um, that's a good thing. It means your, you know, your your communications are private. Uh, it doesn't mean that the person you're talking privately to is honorable or legitimate. All right. Next up, there was a really big stink about uh, Supermicro, which is a company that makes computer motherboards, uh, in particular for large companies. And uh, there was an article in Bloomberg, really scary article that basically said that, you know, Supermicro um, bought a bunch of components from Chinese manufacturers and those man and and they inserted this little spy chip on all of these computer products about the size of a grain of rice, this tiny little chip uh, that basically meant that China could now, you know, take over your computer or at least, you know, tap into the lines and see all the data communications and things like that. Uh, they specifically called out uh, Amazon and Apple. Uh, as companies that have bought from Supermicro, uh, and they heavily implied basically that a lot of these manuf a lot of these companies had computers that could no longer be trusted. Um, 
now Apple and Amazon and uh, a lot of the named companies, including Supermicro, vehemently denied uh, that this was going on and said that there was, uh, you know, and normally when companies deny these things, they leave wiggle room, you know, and they kind of use vague verbiage about it so that, you know, you know, the, there may be some version of the truth that they're just not telling you, but they want to make it sound like it's, you know, it's not true. But um, in this case, they were very specific and very, uh, very adamant that this had not happened. And so Supermicro, the commissioned a independent third-party audit, and the results of that audit just came back. And the results were that nothing happened. They couldn't find a single instance of hacked hardware. Um, Bloomberg took a lot of heat for this story uh, because basically they they had a whole bunch of secret anonymous sources, um, and a lot of technologists looked at their description of what was going on and didn't really buy that either. Uh, And don't get me wrong. It is not that this is not possible. It is possible. The kind of thing that they described is totally possible. But it appears that the specific hack that they said happened hasn't happened. Uh, And I was afraid that might be the case. So there was a a huge, you know, hype around all of this stuff. And a lot of people got really worried. But at the end of the day, at least so far, and according to this audit, what they said happened has not happened. So I guess the takeaway there for you guys is, you know, when you see these, you know, articles that are sensationalistic and have these really, you know, claims that are kind of too hard to believe, you know, don't believe them just yet. <laughs> Give it some time, you know, let there be some rebuttal, let there be some debate uh, and uh, see if the story bears out. In this case, I don't think it did. Okay, moving on. Um, there was a story about some fitness apps. Uh, one was called fitness balance app and one was called calories tracker app. Um, and the maker of these apps did something really sneaky. Uh, and when you brought these apps up, uh, it's, it wanted you, and this is on a, this would be on a smartphone that has a fingerprint reader, like, uh, like the older Apple iPhones, uh, and said, you know, Please put your finger on there to view, quote, view their personalized calorie tracker and diet recommendations. And then somehow under the covers, what they actually did is, is they were bringing up a payment window uh, so that when you put your finger on there, it was basically if you had Apple Pay, like, for instance, on the iPhone, if you had Apple Pay set up on the iPhone and that Apple Pay was set to be confirmed with a fingerprint, they quickly brought up a screen when you touched it um, saying, you know, do you agree to spend $119 on this app? And by having your fingerprint on there, you basically just said yes. Um, and they were using that to steal money from people. It was really pretty, really bad. Now, I'm pretty sure that these have all been pulled uh, from the App Store. But, I mean, this app had, you know, several good reviews. It had an average of 4.3 stars out of 5 rating. So, you know, if you'd just gone to look at this app, and you might have thought it was completely legitimate. So, uh, I guess buyer beware or maybe the original app was probably free. Apple, of course, is doing everything it can, everything it can to crack down on these sorts of things. Um, but it's hard. I mean, there's so, so, so many apps in the app store. And, um, even though iTunes, I think is probably way better curated and vetted than a lot of the Google apps, you know, it's, it's still hard to miss. And the bad guys come up with clever ways like this to get to work around that. And, uh, they steal your money. Um, so, there's not much I can really tell you to do in the cases like this, but just beware. 
Now, this next one I thought I found really interesting. It, uh, it came from uh, I got I, I found out about it through a Naked Security blog entry, which is from Sophos, the guys that do some uh, antivirus software that I have recommended in the past. Uh, and they've got a great blog, and um, they're referencing a Federal Trade Commission report, and it's about phone scams, uh, in particular phone scams targeting seniors, and the the specific type of attack that they're using is is clever and unsettling. So <laughs> let me just read from the uh, the FTC report on this. It says, in 2018, the Consumer Sentinel Network has seen a striking increase in the median dollar amount that people 70 and older are saying they lost to fraud. Digging into the data, we found some common stories with an unusual twist. People 70 and older report mailing huge amounts of cash to people who pretend to be their grandchildren. People 70 and over rarely report to the FTC that they paid a scammer with cash, but for one particular kind of fraud, family and friend imposters, Fully 25% of people 70 and over who reported to the FCC how they paid money told us they sent cash. We call these friend and family imposter scams, but you may know them as the grandparent scam and with good reason. People 70 and over report that the scammer posed as a grandchild, usually a grandson, about 70% of the time. People from all age groups reported median individual losses of about $2,000 to family and friend imposters far higher than the median loss of $462 reported to us this year for all fraud types. But the story is much worse for people 70 and over who sent cash. They reported median individual losses of $9,000. Like many scams, these start with a phone call using some common ploys. In about half of the reports of cash payments, people said the caller claimed to be in jail or other legal trouble. About a third of these reports mentioned a so-called car accident, some mentioning, mentioning texting or drinking while driving. In both cases, the callers play on people's emotions and sense of loyalty. They may be told that they're the only person trusted enough to call for help, and they're often told not to tell anyone. All right, so that's the quote from the report. So I just I found that fascinating one, and I wanted to pass that along. I guess, I think I read another article similar to this that, you know, you wonder like, well, how do they impersonate the grandkids? And I think uh, in some cases what they, they do is it's like a two-person scam. So the first person that calls is like a lawyer uh, or maybe a law enforcement officer or something say, hey, I got your grandkid here. He wants to talk to you. Um, he's in trouble. He, you know, he needs bail money or he needs medical money or, you know, whatever. You know, let me put him on real quick. And then they put the kid on real quick. And, you know, he just says something short and brief, probably crying. So it might be hard to recognize the voice um, and then gets off the phone. So, you know, and the idea being that this person is really ashamed of what they're doing. They're in deep, deep trouble. They've got to have money and they have to have cash. Um, I, I don't know. Of course, it just plays on emotions. And so apparently this has been very lucrative. Um, so be aware of this. If you know anybody in, you know, in your family that might be, you know, that might be a potential victim for this, you might warn them about this scam and let them know that it's almost surely not their grandkids. All right. Next up, we've talked, uh, several times on the show about, you know, the privacy or lack thereof at the U S border. And that's because U S border agents, uh, for better, or for worse, have, a lot more constitutional leeway uh, when it comes to search and seizures. Um, they basically get a pass on standard Fourth Amendment um, searches. They don't need a warrant. If they suspect 
that you might be carrying something illegal or harmful uh, for any reason. Of course, it's it's completely subjective and up to their opinions. Uh, they can ask to search your luggage and search your car and things like that. And in recent years, especially after 9-11, uh, and now that we all have smartphones and many more of us have laptops and tablets and things of, uh, with all sorts of digital information on them, uh, this has been translated to also apply to digital devices. Um, now, there are some restrictions, but there's really not that many. And if they ask you to unlock your phone and let them search it, um, you're really in kind of a bind if you say no. Uh, you could be polite about it, but, you know... The, it's one of those things like the fact that you say no gives makes you look suspicious. So, you know, it's a real catch-22 kind of situation. And uh, we've talked about this several times with folks from the EFF. But uh, anyway, so the point being, they can take your phone. They can, they can actually download data from your device. And they have. Um, not in a lot of cases, but they do. This, is, this has happened. And you would expect, and then they're supposed to, delete that data after they've done whatever they're going to do with it and no longer need it, which I don't know what that time frame is, but it's, it shouldn't be long. Um, but a recent report has now said that they are not doing it. Let me, uh, Gizmodo had an article on this. Let me just read from this article. Last year, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, or CBP, searched through the electronic devices of more than 29,000 travelers coming into the country. CBP officers sometimes upload personal data from those devices to Homeland Security servers by first transferring that data onto USB drives, drives that are supposed that are supposed to be deleted after every use. But a new government report found that the majority of officers failed to delete the personal data. The Department of Homeland Security's internal watchdog, known as the Office of Inspector General, or OIG, released a new report yesterday dealing CBP's many failures at the border. The new report, which is redacted in some places, explains that custom officials don't even follow their own extremely liberal rules. Customs officials can conduct two kinds of electronic searches at the border for anyone entering the country. The first is called a basic or manual search and involves the officer visually going through your phone, your computer, or your tablet without transferring any data. The second is called an advanced search and allows the officer to transfer data from your device to DHS servers for inspection by running that data through its own software. Both searches are legal and don't require a warrant or even probable cause. At least they don't, according to the DHS. It's that second kind of search, the advanced kind, where CBP has really been messing up and regularly leaving the report data, uh, the personal data of travelers on USB drives. According to the report, the Office of the Inspector General physically inspected thumb drives at five ports of entry. At three of the five ports, we found thumb drives that contained information copied from past advanced searches, meaning the information has not been deleted or had not been deleted after the searches were completed. Based on our physical inspection, as well as the lack of a written policy, it appears the Office of Field Operations has not universally implemented the requirement to delete copied information, increasing the risk of unauthorized disclosure of travelers' data should thumb drives be lost or stolen. Now, it's also worth noting that this, uh, quote-unquote, advanced search procedure um, is written up, uh, but the versions that the average public can get a hold of are highly redacted, so we don't even really know what they're doing with your phones. I mean, who knows, you know, if they have physical possession of your phone and they hook it up to some device, you know, certainly they could be pulling all sorts of information off that device. Uh, it's possible. I don't know that they do this. Of course, I don't, I, I couldn't know. Um, they could hack your device. I don't know why they might, but they could. 
uh, you know, if they've got physical access to it and they hook it up to something, they could do that. So uh, it's kind of scary. Uh, again, we've talked about this before on the show um, with folks from the EFF. You might want to go back and check those episodes out. Um, but, you know, it's bad enough that they're doing it. But if they're going to do it, they need to protect that data. And they're not. All right, and moving on to our next topic on our really long list of news topics. There's been so much going on. Um, and this is a big one. And I'm actually hoping to get uh, uh, somebody on the show to do an entire episode on this because it's it's a big deal and it could have impacts here in the U.S. as well because I know that the United States um, intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies are also you know, hoping to get similar legislation passed here. And I hope they don't. Um, but anyway, so Australia just passed this new law, and it's called uh, the Assistance and Access Act. Uh, it was passed with very, very little debate, very, very quickly, kind of railroaded through. Didn't take a lot of public comment. And you know, it's very actually similar to the UK's um, Investigatory Powers Act, which was passed in 2016. Uh, that law is commonly referred to as the Snoopers Charter, uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, and in both cases, the governments of these companies are basically saying, hey, we can't, we don't like all this encrypted information. We can't see what's going on. Uh, it makes it harder for us to do mass surveillance. Now, keep in mind that we are talking about mass surveillance. So they want to be, you know, they're upset that they can't intercept internet-based communications. Now, realize in the past, and you know, in the, if they were going to do, you know, phone taps or whatever, they could go to the phone companies and get those. Yes, there's there's that. But and generally speaking, if they didn't have that opportunity, if there was some other communication mechanism, they would have to, you know, let's say they're using CBs or walkie-talkies or telegraph or whatever else, uh, they would have to go and tap the line somewhere. They would have to either, you know, go put a bug in the house or something like that. Uh, and again, all these things would require warrants, um, which, you know, mass surveillance does not. So... Um, you know, it, it's not like they used to have this capability and now it's gone. You know, in the old days before the Internet, what do they do? And they still caught criminals. So anyway, without getting too much on the soapbox, let me read you a little bit from the, the EFF, of course, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, uh, had plenty to say about this. And uh, let me just read you a little blurb from this and then I will, I'll move on because I'm actually hoping to talk to somebody from there uh, and make this a full show. But I wanted to make you aware of what happened. Ian Levy, GCHQ's technical director, and of course GCHQ is kind of like um, the UK's version of the CIA. Uh, GCH, Ian Levy, GCHQ's technical director, recently posted on the Lawfare blog what GCHQ wants tech companies to do. Buried in, the po- in a post full of justifications, uh, and it says here parenthetically, do a search for crocodile clips um, to find the meat of their proposal. Levy explained or Levy, I'm not sure I'm pronounced that. Uh, Levy explained that GCHQ wants secure messaging services like WhatsApp, Signal, Wire, and iMessage to create deceitful user interfaces that hide who private messages are being sent to. In the case of Apple's iMessage, Apple would be compelled to silently add new devices to the list of apps you think you own. When somebody sends you a message, it will no longer just go to, say, your iPhone, your iPad, and your MacBook. It will go to these devices and a new addition, a spying device owned by the government. With messaging systems like WhatsApp, the approach will be slightly different. Your user interface will claim that you're in a one-to-one conversation, but behind the scenes, the company will be required to silently switch you into a group chat 
Two of the people in the group chat will be you and your friend. The other will be invisible and will be operated by the government. The intelligence services call it the ghost, a stalking ghost that requires the most secure tech products available today to lie to their users via secret orders that their designers cannot refuse without risking prosecution. All right, so that's the end of the article. Basically, and we've talked about this on the show, and this was, and I'll give full credit to Steve Gibson from the Security Now podcast. That's where I heard this first, uh, this idea first. And that is, instead of putting a back door in the encryption, instead of weakening the encryption itself so that it can be tapped and decrypted, what they really want to do is they want to basically be CC'd on all the conversations. And because... You know, Apple and others of these other messaging systems allow for multi-way communication, you know, either by sending, you know, if somebody sends you a message, they copy that message to all your devices, let's say in the Apple case, you know, if someone sends you a text, you could see that text message on your phone, your iPad, uh, or your Mac computer. Uh, and so one way that this would work is that they would, the government would basically force Apple to add a secret extra device that is also getting a copy of that message. So a fourth thing um, that you wouldn't know about. Uh, similarly, in some of these other services, the way you would do it, and iMessage isn't, you could do this with iMessage as well, um, because this is what happened in a group conversation. Apple actually individually encrypts the conversation between you and everybody else in that group. So when I send a message to three other people in a group chat, it's actually encrypted to person one, person two, and person three, all separately with different encryption keys. And so the, what they would do is they would actually just add another fourth person in this case that is secret, that's a ghost. And it would, instead of, you know, when you're looking at the chat on your device and you see me and three other people, there's actually four other people, one of which you can't see. It would require, in that case, the messaging app to not show you that secret other person, which is the government which is what it's saying when it said it would force these companies to write software that basically lies to the user. Anyway, I don't want to go too much deeper in this because again, I'm hoping to do a whole show on this, but while this might sound reasonable and this sound, you know, it doesn't break encryption. It doesn't put any back doors, which is something we were very much worried about. And so in that sense, I guess that's good. It still, it still requires companies to do nefarious things that are not in their user's best interest. And it may be, you know, if this was warrant based, I guess I could maybe see an argument for that, but it, the real devil's in the details. How do you enforce that it's warrant based? How do you prevent it from being abused? How do you prevent hackers from finding out how to use this same service and using it for their own benefits? You know, anytime you, anytime you intentionally weaken a system, um, you're, you're asking for trouble because as I've said before, you, you can't make a door that only good people can walk through. All right. So anyway, I'll move on again. Hopefully I'll, uh, do a whole episode on that coming up soon. All right. Last, uh, news article. And then we're going to get into our new year's resolutions for 2019. Okay. So the New York times had this really jaw dropping article about location tracking and it, it's a really, it's kind of a long article, but it, it, I actually encourage you to read it. I'll make sure I put a link to this in the show notes. Uh, be, because not only does it tell you what's going on, it actually has some very interesting visuals. If you look at it on the web, and I would recommend that you do this on a full-size screen, not on your iPhone, um, it has some really kind of interesting animations that walk you through how this is so dangerous and how much information is actually being collected. And I, you know, I can't 
I, I can describe that here, but it, it, you really just kind of have to see it. So uh, I would recommend that if this interests you at all, and it really honestly should interest everybody, um, go take a look at this New York Times article. Uh, if you search for um, uh, location data privacy apps, uh, that should find it. Let me just read you a little bit from this article, and then I'll talk about it. So it says, At least 75 companies receive anonymous, precise location data from apps whose users enable location services to get local news and weather or other information. The Times found. Several of these businesses claim to track up to 200 million mobile devices in the United States, about half those in use last year. The database reviewed by The Times, a sample of information gathered in 2017 and held by one company, reveals people's travels in startling detail, accurate to within a few yards, and in some cases updated more than 14,000 times a day. These companies sell, use, or analyze the data to cater to advertisers, retail outlets, and even hedge funds seeking insights into consumer behavior. It's a hot market with sales of location-targeted advertising reaching an estimated $21 billion this year. Businesses say their interest is in the patterns, not the identities, that the data reveals about consumers. They note that the information apps collect is tied not to someone's name or a phone number, but to a unique ID. But those with access to the raw data, including employees or clients, could still identify a person without consent. They could follow someone they knew by pinpointing a phone that regularly spent time at a person's home address, or working in reverse, they could attach a name to an anonymous dot by seeing where the device spent nights and using public records to figure out who lived there. Many location companies say that when phone users enable location services, their data is fair game. But the Times found the explanations people see when prompted to give permission are often incomplete or misleading. An app may tell users that granting access to their location will help them get traffic information, but not mention that the data will be shared and sold. That disclosure is often buried in vague privacy policy. Quote, Location information can reveal some of the most intimate details of a person's life, whether you visit a a psychiatrist, whether you went to an AA meeting, who you might date, said Senator Ron Wyden, Democrat of Oregon, who proposed bills to limit the collection and sale of such data, which are largely unregulated in the United States. Again, quoting, it's not right to have consumers kept in the dark about how their data is sold and shared and then leave them unable to do anything about it, he added. So a quick shout out to Ron Wyden and others like him um, in uh, in Congress and in the Senate that are recognizing how bad this problem is and seeing that we absolutely need to do something because there's just, there's no check on this. There's the companies, the companies are trying to make as much money as possible and your data is worth a lot, especially when, you know, kind of put into these really detailed dossiers and sliced and diced and analyzed. And there's, a you know, there's just so much that can be done with it and they're, the, the money is rolling in and they can't stop themselves. So we're going to need some, uh, we're going to need to put some rules around this uh, because currently it's pretty much the wild, wild west and there's, it's, it's fair game. So I, again, if you, uh, if this bothers you at all and it should bother everybody, I highly recommend you go check out this article. It, I, it's long, but there's some really interesting stuff in that article. And again, the visuals really bring it home uh, and show you just how much information can be gleaned from your location. Uh, I will say in the meantime, uh, and this is hard to do on Android, uh, but you can, uh, it's easier to do on the iPhone. Uh, you need to go into your settings, find your privacy settings, uh, somewhere in there, there should be a setting for location services. And you want to restrict that as much as humanly possible. Um, 
and, you know, don't give out. And when new apps are installed and they ask for your location, unless they absolutely need that location to provide to you the service that you want, deny it. Um, one nice thing that the iPhone is doing, and I, I don't think this is on Android just yet, but on the iPhone, uh, in many cases, you can actually tell it that I only want you to access my location when you are the frontmost app. Um, so in other words, when I'm, when I'm actually called up the weather and that's the frontmost app and I want to see the current local weather for wherever I'm standing right now, you know, then it makes sense for them to send your location. Um, but when that app is in the background and I'm doing something else or my phone is off and I'm not looking at that app, why in the world would you want my location information? I will say that there are some exceptions. Uh, you know, actually weather apps is one of them. So if you want to get, you know, severe weather and, you know, indications for wherever you currently are, then yeah, it needs to know your location when it's running in the background. Um, in that case, I wouldn't use the Weather Channel app, unfortunately. Uh, they're one of the apps that has been really bad about selling location data, from what I hear. So you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to make some choices. You're probably going to have to dig into the privacy policy, and of course that privacy policy can change. So, you know, it's hard. It's really hard to do this because there's there's no rules. There's no regulations around this. They can do whatever they want. As long as you say yes and turn on that location services yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll do the thing that you want them to do with that data, but they can also do things you don't want them to do with that data. And that's, that's why we need some regulation. All right. So that's the news. I got you all caught up. Uh, now it's time to do our new year's resolutions for 2019. Uh, these are things that I, you know, that maybe you know, you need to do things that I've probably told you several times that you should be doing and you've put off and you just haven't done, or you haven't done the way you should have done it. Um, I'm going to bring up, uh, I don't know, five or six things that I challenge you in 2019 to find some time, some way to get these done. They're not in any particular order, uh, but these are, you know, some of my top tips for, you know, protecting your data and uh, protecting your computers and being more secure. All right. And here we go. These are your new year's resolutions for 2019 for cybersecurity and privacy. Uh, number one, use a password manager. The reason you need to use a password manager is because you need to have long, strong, crazy, random passwords for every single website that you have, uh, every web account you have. And I'm not just talking, you know, just your bank. You really, really need to do this everywhere. Um, more to the point, you can't be reusing passwords. If you can remember a password, uh, chances are the bad guys can guess it. Actually, it's not them guessing it. It's computers that are guessing it. Um, and apropos of this, the, um, there's a, a company that every year puts out the top, I don't know, 100 worst passwords of, of the year. Uh, and what this is, is for all the data breaches and all the things that were, where passwords were successfully cracked, uh, they list the most common cracked passwords. And by that, I mean, it, these were cracked. So the bad guys were able to determine what the passwords were because they were so bad and realize that the, the bad guys have these lists too. These are the first passwords they try. So uh, as soon as there's been a data breach somewhere and, and they get a hold of the password database, they look at these first. So uh, just FYI, let's run down the top 10. These are the top 10 most hacked passwords of 2018, according to this report. Coming in at number 10 was I love you, uh, all lowercase. Uh, number nine was QWERTY, K-W-E-R-T-Y, which uh, anybody who's typing will realize those are the top keys across uh, any uh, standard U.S. keyboard. Uh, number eight was Sunshine. I don't know where that came from. Uh, 
Number seven was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Number six was one, 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 six ones. Number five was one, two, three, four, five. Number four was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Number three was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Number two, again, this year, the number two most commonly hacked password was password. And number one, again, this year, perennial favorite, one, two, three, four, five, six. Those were the most hacked passwords, which, <laughs> so I got to say websites, I, honestly, websites at this point should just be blocking those. If you try to make those your passwords, they should just say no and force you to choose something else. But if you use a password manager like LastPass or 1Password or Dashlane, uh, I personally prefer LastPass, but you're welcome to look at all those. The password manager does all the hard work for you. It'll create some crazy 20 character completely random gibberish password that you will never need to remember. It fills it in for you. That's the whole point. Uh, and because it's so crazy, there's no way that the bad guys, even if they threw a supercomputer at it, could possibly guess your password. Uh, so that's why password managers are so important. And you want unique passwords because once the bad guys find your, figure out what your password is, they try to use that same password on any other account that they can associate with you. So let's say there's a breach at target.com and they and you used a really weak password for your target.com account. Uh, well, Target will probably force you to change your password. Okay, so that's now covered. But if you use that same password at homedepot.com or at your bank or some or Gmail or anywhere else, then those other places aren't going to know that. So they're not going to recommend you change your password on those sites, meaning that that password now is is valid, for, still valid for all those other sites as well. So whenever there are those breaches and you're in, you know, you, if you, whatever password you use on that site where there's a breach, if you use that password anywhere else, you better go change those as well. And as long as you're going to do that, make it a unique password. And the only way, the only way that a human can do that is by using a tool. And that tool is a password manager. So, uh, I, that's, that's it. Top number one for, uh, for 2019, if you're not already using a password manager, you really, really must be. All right, let's move on. Number two, um, stop using Google Chrome and, and stop using Google search. Uh, in fact, get off as much Google stuff as you can. Um, you know, Google actually does some wonderful, wonderful stuff when it comes to security, but when it comes to privacy, they're just awful. Um, and because everybody uses them, it's just, people just can't get away from it. Uh, I'm honestly, I was all in on Google. I've, I've got, I use Google for all sorts of stuff. Uh, and I am slowly extracting myself from Google and moving on to other things. Um, but if nothing else, stop using Google Chrome. It's the most popular browser on the planet, but it really shouldn't be. It's just a privacy nightmare. Uh, I, I recommend instead that you use Firefox. Um, it's a great independent browser. Um, and if you put in the right plugins, which I'll tell you about here in a second, it's a very secure, very private browser. Uh, and, and the privacy part is the key there because the Google browser actually is quite secure. I think Firefox is similarly secure, but it's so, so much more private. So when you get Firefox, I would install the following plugins, uh, uBlock Origin, which is an ad blocker. Uh, and while a lot of, a lot of websites make money off of ads, unfortunately ads are still very hackable and they can be, uh, vectors for infecting your computer, uh, or rerouting you to scams. And, Honestly, until they can get that worked out, I think it's just safer for you to block all ads. 
So uh, uBlock Origin, uh, great ad blocker, and it's also got some privacy tracking, anti-privacy tracking features. Uh, I would install Privacy Badger from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. It's a really good um, uh, plugin for blocking tracking on the web. Uh, also, they've got another one called HTTPS Everywhere, uh, which forces uh, HTTPS connections whenever possible. Uh, and even though many more and more sites are doing it now, there's still several sites that, for whatever reason, support both encrypted and non-encrypted, which is to say they support HTTP connections as well as HTTPS connections, but they default to unsecure for some reason. So anyway, this, uh, this plugin makes sure that if they support both, that you always uh, select the HTTPS, even if you entered HTTP. So that's another great plugin. Finally, I would uh, install DuckDuckGo Privacy Essentials, and that'll do two things for you. First of all, it will change your default search engine to be DuckDuckGo, which is a privacy-respecting search engine. Uh, unlike Google, uh, everything you've ever searched on Google, if you have not taken great, great pains to lock down the privacy aspects of that, Google knows everything you've ever, ever searched for, and they will remember it forever. <laughs> and, you know, who knows what, you know, if you're searching on medical conditions or... You know, things that are could be really private, you know, that's not something that you want somebody else to know and keep track of. And God forbid, sell or use for other purposes. And the other thing that the uh, the DuckDuckGo um, the DuckDuckGo plugin will do is it will also block some tracking aspects and it will actually give your websites a grade uh, if you're interested. Uh, like the standard A through F grading system, it'll kind of tell you what it rates that website in terms of how much it's trying to track you. So that might be interesting to see. So anyway, Firefox with those plugins, uBlock Origin, HTTPS Everywhere, Privacy Badger, and DuckDuckGo Privacy Essentials. All right, and next up on our list of New Year's resolutions for 2019, back up your data. This is crucial. Um, if you've got backups of your data, if something, if a virus comes along, ransomware, you know, a God, God forbid, some sort of a flood or natural disaster, you know, your family photos and your family home videos and your music collection and those tax documents and all those things that you cannot replace are backed up and taken care of and uh, you can replace them. Um, there are two ways to do this and I actually would recommend if you can, I would do the both and that is you can back up to an external hard drive so that is a one-time purchase. You buy yourself a little USB external hard drive. I like the little portable ones because it just has the one cord. The USB cord doesn't even have a power cord. Uh, they're very small, uh, and they've gotten very cheap. Uh, I would get one, you know, roughly the twice the size maybe of your hard drive, or if you've got very few files, you know, figure out how much space you're using on your hard drive, um, and then, you know, I would double or triple that. Um and hook it up to your computer. And if you're on a Mac, you'll be using Time Machine. And if you're on Windows, you'll be using Backup and Restore. They're both free software that comes with your computer. Um, uh, go through this all in detail in my book. I'm, I can't go through it all here. Uh, but you can search and find some um, uh, information on the web about how to set this up. And it will periodically back up all of your files uh, to this external drive. Now, uh, that's cheap. It's a one-time purchase. You just got, you just have to buy the hard drive. So that's why it's good to do. And it, they, they back up, uh, usually once an hour. Uh, I think it's like once an hour for a day and then it's once a day for a week. And then it's, you know, they've got this kind of a back off thing. They back up constantly and they only back up the files that change. So there's the initial hit of backing up everything. 
And then after that, it only change, it only backs up the things that change. And you can actually go back in time and get multiple old versions of files. So if you even, so this helps even if you accidentally delete a file or if you accidentally corrupt a file or overwrite a file or something like that, uh, you can also use this, uh, these mechanisms to go back and get a previous version of the file, which is very handy. Now, so that's the, the local external backup. The other option is a cloud backup. Um, and the downside of the cloud backup is it's an ongoing cost. You're going to pay for this um, once every month or, or every year, depending on how you sign up for the service. So it's going to be an ongoing cost. Uh, the good part about the cloud backup is that it's off-site. So, you know, if you've got an external hard drive sitting right next to your computer and your whole house goes up in flames, then not only did your, did your computer get roasted, but so did the backup drive. So you, you need to have those files, those key files in particular, uh, backed off, uh, backed up uh, off-site somewhere as well. Um, so the way this works is you sign up for the service, you download the little app. I personally recommend a service called Backblaze, B-A-C-K-B-L-A-Z-E, Backblaze. Uh, they're very reasonable. They're very simple to set up. And uh, they will uh, back up all your files to an internet server. Um, now, if you're worried about privacy, they give you the option. Uh, everything is always encrypted. Uh, these services are smart enough to encrypt everything. So all this data being transferred to, uh, from your computer to the servers up in the sky uh, are all encrypted. So no one along the way is going to be able to snoop that data and figure out what it is. It's also encrypted on their servers, um, on Backblaze's servers, for example. Uh, the key there is is that they have the key to that data. So if there was a rogue employee or if you know law enforcement came knocking and said, hey, I want you to decrypt this information so I could peek at it, they could do that. The way around that is to set your own encryption key, and Backblaze allows you to do this. And combined with the LastPass thing in the, uh, at the beginning, you can use LastPass to generate uh, a really kick-butt, super long random password and give that to Backblaze. And now... Uh, the data is locked up with your key, and they don't have that key. Um, so that makes it all that much more private. So I would recommend doing that. So again, it's if you can do both, I would do both. If you can only do one of those two, I would do the cloud backup. All right, three more. Three more things. We're halfway through our list. Number four, turn on two-factor authentication wherever you can. Um, because there are so many data breaches, because... Uh, passwords do get stolen or do get loose. Um, or there are tricky ways for bad guys to even get your, uh, your really good passwords. Sometimes you need a second factor. You need like a, basically a, it's a, it's a second way to lock up your accounts. Um, the way a lot of them used to work and they're getting away from this now, cause it's really not as secure as the newer ways is they would, they get your mobile phone number. And when you go to log into your account, let's say it's Google, and you go to log into Google from some weird computer that you're not usually, that you haven't logged into from before. Google's going to recognize that, hey, this is not usually where Kerry logs in from. That looks odd. So because he signed up for two-factor authentication, I'm going to challenge him for one more piece of authentication information. And that is this, usually it's a six-digit code um, that uh, that's a one-time use six-digit code. And uh, they will, in the old days, they would text you that. So you get it on your phone. So what that means is for the bad guy to get in your account, not only do they have to know your username and password uh, and get that correct, but then they also have to have possession of your phone or at least some device that would receive a text message um, to your account, to your phone number. So it's two things that the bad guys have to have to get in your account. And that makes it significantly harder to hack accounts. Um, so I would highly recommend that you do this. Now, 
instead of the text message, if uh, the, the the modern way of doing this is to use um, an authenticator app of some sort. Now, Google makes one called Google Authenticator, which is uh, works well, and I've actually used it quite a bit. But I'm going to actually recommend a different one. And if you have my book, you'll know that this is actually different than what I recommended in the book. So I'm going to have to change this in the next edition, I think. And because I just hit this myself, and it's not fun, I just got myself a brand new phone. And even though I completely backed up my phone before I got a new phone, this was an iPhone, when I came back and plugged in the new phone and did a restore uh, from my Mac that should have brought everything back for whatever reason, and I don't get why this is, in Google Authenticator, and I must have had, gosh, I must have had a dozen and a half two-factor authentication um, uh, accounts set up on Google Authenticator. It only brought back five of them. I, I, I don't know why. Now, the problem with that is if you've turned on two-factor authentication, you can't provide a two-factor authentication code. A lot of these services won't let you log in because they assume that you're a crook. You're, they assume you're a hacker um, because if you can't provide that information, which you agreed to give them whenever you did something suspicious, um, they're going to assume that you're a bad guy. And the only way to, and a lot of these, the only way to, to, to fix that is to disable two-factor authentication and re-enable it with a new, a new device. Now, luckily, a lot of these services are starting to give out, like when you sign up for two-factor authentication, they'll give you a short set of like 10 one-time use, recover, what they call, usually call recovery codes. And luckily, um, I was able to reset up uh, two-factor authentication with a lot of my services because I'd done something else too, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, so with these recovery codes, basically it says, okay, if you don't have your device with you right now, as long as you have one of these codes, we'll, we'll accept that as your, um, instead of a two-factor authentication code, uh, and let you get in. And once you do that, you can disable two-factor authentication and then re-enable it so that you can pair it with a new device. Um, and uh, I, I didn't get into the details before, but um, when you're setting it up with these authentication apps, what happens is when you set up two-factor two authentication with these accounts, they, what they usually do is they show you a QR code, which is like that two, that square UPC kind of looking thing. It's got a, um, and you scan that with the, the camera on the device from the app, and then it syncs up. And then it starts giving you these one-time six-digit numbers that rotate every 30 seconds or so. Um, and to confirm that you got the code okay, it says, okay, give me a sample of one of the codes now that it's generating for you. And if that matches, then you're good to go and your two-factor authentication is set up. Um, what I do now that I've been burned, <laughs> actually I did it beforehand because I knew this was coming, uh, for a good number of my accounts. When you, get it, when you get that QR code up on the screen, take a picture of that to go a screenshot of it and print it on physical paper and then store that paper somewhere safe. And then next time you get a new phone or if you lose your phone or it's destroyed or lost, stolen, whatever, and you get a new phone, you've got to reset up um, uh, two-factor authentication. If you've got that printed paper, you can just go back and reset it up again and you're good to go. That same code will work again in the future on a new device to, to, to get you in sync and therefore you can uh, allow you to use two-factor authentication. But if you don't want to go through all that rigmarole, um, there's another application called Authy, A-U-T-H-Y. Authy. And within Authy, it's like Google Authenticator. You you scan codes and all that same, same business for setting up two-factor authentication. Uh, but there is a way to securely synchronize your data up into the cloud so that from another device, or if you lose your device um, and, and need to restore, 
you can restore your authentication codes back to the device. Now, uh, LastPass has its own authenticator called LastPass Authenticator uh, that has the same thing. Um, but I guess just from a all your eggs in one basket perspective, I would think you might want to do a different app. So I, I've started using Authy uh, instead of Google Authenticator for my um, uh, for my uh, two-factor authentication app. Now, if you if you religiously print off those QR codes and label them, you know, Twitter, Gmail, whatever they are, so you know what they are, uh, and print those off and put them somewhere, that's kind of the same thing. You just have to make sure you don't lose those. If you're, you know, if you lose those papers, you're in the same boat. You know, and that's kind of a pain. I I will caution you, don't don't take those snapshots and save them someplace on a computer because if your computer's hacked, then the bad guys have access to those, and now they can also impersonate you that way. So um, you actually don't want those in digital form if you can just print them out. Anyway, long story, long story short, I know that was complicated. Um, you really want to start using two-factor authentication whenever you can. So uh, go get yourself a two-factor authentication app. Um, I would, again, recommend Authy, A-U-T-H-Y, um, and get signed up for that. Make sure you sign up for cloud backups uh, with Authy. Uh, and then go to each of these services and start signing up for two-factor authentication using these scanned codes. Um, and what that means, it's a little bit of a pain, but what that means is that every time you go to log into someplace new for the first time, uh, either from a computer you're not used to doing it or from a location you're not used to doing it, uh, and you know these services will challenge you to make sure that you really are who you say you are because something looks fishy. Uh, and not only will you need your username and password, but you're going to need uh, this two-factor authentication code. Uh, one more thing I will point out about um, LastPass and password managers that I forgot to mention earlier, and it's a very important point, is there are so many phishing scams out there. And by phishing, you know, P-H-I-S-I-N-G, uh, is where bad guys try to trick you into going to a lookalike website. Uh, they can make it look just like your bank or just like PayPal or just like eBay. Uh, you know, they can, it's easy to create a site that looks just like the original. Uh, and then, but it's not the original, it's fake. And then when you enter your credentials to log in, they store those off and now they've got your login information. Um, one really nice thing about LastPass and, and other password managers is it will not be fooled by phishing sites. If you are not on the exact website that you're supposed to be on, it will not offer to fill in your credentials. So when you go to these sites and it doesn't offer to fill in your credentials, you're like, hey, wait a minute, that's weird. And you should take that as a sign that you're not really on the site you think you are. So that's another great reason to use a password manager. All right, two more actually in the fifth one. Uh, this, the next one I've actually kind of covered with the uh, back uh, with the Chrome one, and that is change your search engine to DuckDuckGo. Um, DuckDuckGo has come a long way. It's a really good search engine. I know Google is a very good search engine, but um, we're hope I'm hoping to bring back Daniel Davis, and we'll talk about this in the future. Uh, Google not only is it not a very private, but it's a very filtered. Uh, filter bubble kind of a thing uh, with Google search at those because the results are tailored to you specifically, which means it's likely to show you things you want to see and not likely to show you something that they don't think you want to see, uh, which, you know, it's kind of like putting on the rose, rose colored glasses. Um, so uh, they did a really interesting study about this and I'd love to talk to them about it. So hopefully we'll be reporting on that in the future. But in the meantime, uh, go to DuckDuckGo. It's a great search engine um, and it's private. Uh, while they do show ads, the ads are only based on what you just typed in. They're not based on everything else that, like, for example, the Google knows about you, which is a lot. So DuckDuckDuck doesn't, doesn't track you. It doesn't remember tomorrow that you searched uh, on cars today or whatever you searched on. Uh, it's it, They only show you relevant ads based on the exact text you just gave them, and it doesn't remember. 
Um, so try DuckDuckGo out. And if you install, if you use Firefox and you install their DuckDuckGo Privacy Essentials, it'll automatically switch your default search engine to be DuckDuckGo. All right, actually, that's my list. Uh, the, the last thing I wanted to ask you to do, and this is a favor, um, beyond the resolutions, though, maybe, maybe this will make your news resolution list as well. Um, if you're enjoying this podcast, and I really, of course, hope you are, I strongly encourage you to go to iTunes in particular, uh, because it's the most popular place on the planet to get podcasts by a long shot. Go to iTunes, and you're welcome to do this anywhere else you'd like to do as well, Google Play and other places as well. But please give uh, give this a review. Give my podcast a nice review. Um, I've never asked for this before, or very rarely asked for this before, and it shows because I've got, I think I've got one review, uh, literally one review. <laughs> so uh, you know, just to show up on people's radars, there needs to be more. Even to, even just to have them have an average star rating, you've got to have several reviews. So uh, I would really appreciate it. You can go as soon as you can. I know you're most people listen to podcasts while they're running or driving or something like that. So you're not you don't have access to a computer right then and there, but. I encourage you when you get, you know, as soon as you get to the point where you can, before you forget, just go ahead and give me a star review. I don't even think you have to give any words or anything. I think you can just give it a star review. Uh, if nothing else, do that. But if, you know, if you've got the time and would like to, if you're really enjoying the podcast, uh, I would also encourage you just to give a little blurb of what you like about the show uh, to encourage other people to listen as well. <laughs> Okay, that's going to do it. That was a long show. We had a lot to cover today. Um, We'll be back again, of course, next week, as always. And uh, appreciate your listening. Uh, Again, I'm looking for feedback as well. Uh, If there's topics you'd like to cover, if there's people you'd like me to interview, um, any feedback on the show itself, I'm all ears. I'd love to hear from it. You can uh, send that info to uh, Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y, at firewallsdontstopdragons.com. And of course, if you go to firewallsdontstopdragons.com, you can also find my blog and my newsletter uh, where I send that out every two weeks or so. Um, and you get uh, one actionable tip every two weeks, uh, complete with links and things like that. So it's very handy. Uh, you can also find information about my book, also called Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Uh, and there's also some handy resources, too. I try to keep an updated list of things like oh, documentaries you might want to see, Um uh, even other podcasts you might want to listen to, books you might want to read, things like that. I try to keep an updated list of some of my favorite uh, cybersecurity and privacy resources on there as well. Lots of good information there. And again, a reminder, the big 100th episode of the podcast is coming up toward the end of January. So you're definitely going to want to be subscribed and tuned in for that one. We're going to have some really fun stuff going on, including some giveaways. So uh, be sure to tune in tell your friends and family they might want to get that subscription in now and start listening. It's coming up sooner than you think. I'll talk to you again next week and uh, stay safe. And as always, everybody, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.